The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday. That means it's time for another q and I've got the phone lines queued up and five callers on the line. Let's get after it. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I am your host. Welcome to Friday Q&A. These Friday Q&A shows are my favorite shows of the week. These are the shows where I show up to a phone line and I get to talk to you. It uh, helps. Uh, I love it. It's, it's these. I get so much energy out of talking to people that I often don't get. I have to manufacture the energy when I record the show by myself. But when I talk to people, real live people, it gives me just a ton of energy. So the way it works is the callers have called into a conference line here. And so we're going to go to them one at a time uh, as we go through. Uh, these Friday Q&A calls are open primarily to patrons of the show. Although today I sent out the invitation for this call to subscribe to the Radical Personal Finance email list. Uh, I've been working hard to communicate more and more with you via email. And so as a reward for those who have given me their email address, <laughs> then I, uh, I am allowing the email list onto these calls. You know, I'd love to do, uh, if I had my perfect world, I probably would love to do uh, you know, a daily call-in radio show. I'd love to do that. I just haven't f- figured out how to make that work, nor have I particularly pursued it. And the way the radio business, uh, the way the radio business works uh, it's, you know, anyway, I haven't decided to pursue that, but I do love doing these on Friday. So we've got some great questions. If you'd like to join a future call, please make sure that you sign up to become a patron of the show. That'll be the most consistent thing because sometimes I get too many callers off the email list. And so some of you guys get locked out uh, or you can take a chance if you're cheap and you don't want to send me any money. That's okay. Or if you're just working on other financial goals, that's okay too. Um, then what you can do is uh, join the email list and then you'll receive invitations to these calls possibly from time to time. We're going to start with Shaz in Tallahassee. Shaz, what's your question? How can I serve you today, please? So, yes, um, I'm 48. My husband is 58. We're both late bloomers. We started with retirement four years ago because uh, we're busy doing other things in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, no children. Um um, I've got a six-figure job now because I went back to school, and um, we have student loans as a result, 100000 small house of 100,000 square feet. That's, that we owe about 155 on that. Um, and um, we have possibilities of maxing out our retirement. Uh, we have a, a 403B, 457, 18 can go into each. So the question is, since we are... Um, 
older, um, what do we do? I mean, which sequence should we which should should we follow? Should we max out the retirement while paying off our debt, and then paying off our house, and then potentially thinking about buying a rental? How much does your husband earn at his job? He earns twenty five thousand. Okay, so you're at about a hundred, and he's at twenty five, give or take. Um, so now I just got a raise, so I'm actually at one about one fifty with the overtime that I do, and. So next year, it's going to be 175. This year, it was 150 together. Great. So the point is you got a high income, and because both of those yeah. are all wages, are, is all of your compensation paid to you as wages? Yes. Okay, so you're in a high tax bracket. Um, and that's a big, big deal uh, in terms of figuring out the answer to this question. You said that you started retirement four years ago. By that, do you mean you started saving for retirement four years ago? Um, I just actually just max just did the match and just started paying off the debt, like throwing two thousand a dollars a month at it. That's what I was saying. Yes. Right. So before, yeah, we have no savings. We this, yes, we have savings and it's ten thousand dollars. So that's really everything in the nutshell. Okay. Very simple. Why why didn't you save for retirement earlier in life, such that you weren't then, but now you've decided to start saving for retirement? What changed for you? Uh, well, I think it was just we're we have a lot of useful energy. We didn't. We just wanted to live life. You only live once. I came from a working class background, and um, I always vowed to myself when I was young, I just want to buy whatever I want, live the way I want, and it was just not in my on my radar. And I, I just and so now I've become. A, you know, I read this book, Money or Your Life, and. I guess you just get older and you just become more mature. It's like, wow, what have, what have I been doing? And I've made financial mistakes, including bankruptcy, like 15 years ago. So it's just, I don't know. I just grew up. Okay. Both the, of us. Uh, real quick on the bankruptcy. Was that a result of something catastrophic and unexpected, such as a medical expense or a lawsuit? Or was it uh, just simply due to you had accumulated debt over time due to gradual overspending and at some point it became too much for you? Yeah, that it's poor financial choices okay. and a relationship that I was in as well. Got it. Okay. Just, yeah. So – when you and your husband, you know, just got out of finished school, got this great job earning a lot of money. When you guys talk about retirement now, what does that mean to you? What do you want to do? So, so honestly, we don't really talk about it. I'm the only one thinking about it because my husband is still like, oh, you know, it's going to work out. So, um, when I think about retirement, I think about um, volunteering. Um, and pursuing things that really are non-monetarily, like, you know, going out to the third world, maybe working with Doctors Without Borders. Um, it's, it's usually some kind of altruistic work. And my husband is interested as well. As well. So, it's, so that's not something I could pursue monetarily. Do you have any connection or attachment to this job or career that you're engaged in now emotionally? Like, do you like doing it? Um, I like it. I like it enough. It's not, um, it pays well and it's something that I can do with my volunteer work. Um, and that's where I would be interested in. I'm a nurse anesthetist, so I could provide anesthesia to people 
in the third world who don't have access to surgery. And, and that's something where my heart would go out to. That's what I would enjoy doing at some point. Um, so, yes, but I would like to just do it part-time. I don't want to be in the operating room full-time with no windows um, for, for, you know, 30 years or so. So when you are talking about on your shows, like, I could retire, but I would, if I did this job, I would, would only want to do it part-time. Okay. I have to do it for the next 40 years. If you did this job part-time, how much do you think you could earn in today's market? Um, I could probably earn um, 80000 And how much are your monthly living expenses right now, not including your student loan payments or extra payments? Um, it includes the mortgage? Yes. Okay. Um, then that would be, I also support my mom. It's about 3500 Including the support for your mom, it's about $3,500 a month? Yeah. Okay. And how much of that is your mortgage payment? Um, my mortgage is $1,040, and that includes everything, tax and home insurance. Okay. If you were... If you were doing your, your job part-time, how, how long could you imagine your career uh, – h- how long do you think you could keep working in your career? To what age? Um, probably at least until 70. Okay. Well, the, the most important thing is going to be to clarify – what is important to you and your husband in this second half of your life? Uh, that's going to be the most important thing. If you look forward uh, over the next 50 years and you imagine what a perfect life looks like, you've got to get very clear on that perspective. Now, I don't know if you are accustomed to thinking in 50-year time blocks uh, or not, do you think of yourself as having another 50 years in front of you that you've got a that you've got a plan for? Um, I, I don't think in 50 years, but I do think uh, it's a good potential of being alive in 50 years because my because all of my family in the German side they are like 100 years old, and so. But I could I could imagine that. Good. So a lot of people, the reason I'm using this is a lot of people, when they uh, first come to, uh, when they first come to, uh, you know, an age where they're 50 years old, they might be thinking, oh, I'm going to die at 70 or 75. Uh, But realistically, you especially, because you're a woman and you're likely to outlive your husband, you need to be thinking in terms of uh, a 50 year uh, time block. And that's going to be your planning. If you think in terms of 50 years, it should dramatically change and open up your horizons in terms of how many things you could do. You could spend the next 10 years working something and still have 40 years in front of you. So don't think – don't start from the perspective of, oh, it's all lost and I'm 48 years old. My husband's 58 and we've – you know, we've just haven't saved for retirement and so therefore we're all doomed. Um, A lot of people think that way. I encourage you not to think that way. You've got a lot of time and you've got a lot of opportunities in front of you. If you think in terms of 50 years and in the next 50 years what you would imagine your life looking like, you've got to sketch out a future that is exciting to you. 
the most exciting thing to me in what you said is that you've built this career for yourself that you could do part-time and earn $80,000 per year, that you like the work that you do, and you could do it part-time and earn $80,000 per year. That is a lot of money to earn from a part-time career. That's because you've worked hard, you've gone to school, and you've uh, worked, you've chosen uh, a career that has significant monetary value. Uh, that means that if, especially if the part-time would allow you to do some of the other work that you care about, care deeply about, if it's going to go and work with Doctors Without Borders, if that opens you up to do that, if that's compelling to you, then that's going to be a really exciting thing to work towards. Now, how do you get there? That's going to be uh, that's going to be the question. Well, um, you do need to square away a couple of things financially. You do want to square away the student loans, and you do want to square away. Probably, you want to square away the mortgage, because if you are earning eighty thousand dollars and you are debt free, that's going to allow you to feel much more comfortable with your uh, with your uh, volunteering and with your being flexible with your part time income than if you are feeling like I only have ten thousand dollars in the bank and I'm not earning a lot of money and I got a lot of debt still. And so, what would I do? I think a few things. Um, the house that you're living in is that the house that you want to be in forever? Is that a forever house, or do you need to change housing yes, of some it is. kind? All right. Nope, nope, it's the forever. Okay, so this is a forever like house. my relationship. Good. <laughs> All right, so if this is a forever house and it's a forever relationship, then you're in a situation where you got to look forward and say what, what makes sense. Given your income bracket, uh, I think contributing to retirement accounts makes a lot of sense. Um, possibly maxing out retirement accounts makes a lot of sense. Uh, just because it it will have a dramatic difference on your impact and be, uh, on your eight, on your ability to uh, uh, lower your tax burden, and given your age, the fact that your husband is uh, a year in, uh, is I'm blanking on fifty nine and a half. Yeah, is a year away Ten from. Years. Well, he's fifty eight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're 48 and he's 58. So that means your husband is a year away from being able to take money out of retirement accounts without any penalties. And you are 10 years away from being able to take money out of retirement accounts without any penalties. Then your, your flexibility is not reduced very much by contributing to retirement accounts. What is the interest rate on your student loans? Um, I have done so far because of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the overall, I've got different ones, but it's about 3.5, the highest at 3.99 from 8%, by the way. Great. Awesome. Radicalpersonalfinance.com slash SoFi. Hey, thank you very much for that, Shaz. <laughs> Radicalpersonalfinance.com slash SoFi. <laughs> SoFi is a student loan uh, that, well, they do other loans as well. They do mortgage loans, et cetera, but they have often dramatically cheaper prices uh, that you can use to consolidate your student loans. Uh, what's the interest rate on your mortgage? Um, 3.75. Great. Man, it's hard to tell you to pay down debt aggressively that that's low that that's at that low the, those low of an interest rates. Um now you're putting me in a bind. I am. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why I'm calling. Yeah, you're putting me in a bind. Um You can get back with me on that. I know you have all the callers. <laughs> no, I've got it. I got it. I need to give you an answer. Uh, it's it's just such a hard thing to to to, to say. Um, I, I think I would, if I woke up in your shoes, I would first max 
my retirement accounts across the board. Uh, I would keep my expenses as low as possible, and I would probably get rid. Oh man, the problem is if you get rid of the student loans, they're not inheritable, and you don't have children. This is not an easy decision for me. So let me just walk it through verbally so that the audience can find if I've got uh, if I've got any any problems. Your interest rates on both of your mortgages are both low fixed interest. Uh, interest rates, 3.5% and 3.75%. So low fixed interest mortgage rates. Uh, both of them, mor- you're in a forever house that you're planning to stay in forever. There's not a huge benefit for you of paying that off early. And with your student loans, uh, even just contrary to what I said earlier where I said I'd get debt-free, with your student loans, if those are at a low fixed rate interest, there's not a huge benefit for you in paying those off you know, particularly early either. Uh, you have a high income, and so we want to prioritize the retirement savings. You don't have a lot of assets other than your ret- potentially what is going to grow to be your retirement accounts. So, and you're going to be having social security income and income coming in out of your retirement accounts. So, even in a worst case scenario, you are basically creditor proof and judgment proof in that situation because social security income cannot be attached by your creditors, and money that's in your retirement accounts uh, is cannot be attached by creditors as well. So, I think if I were in your shoes. I would probably – and the other reason I'm talking about this is that since you and your husband have no children, then there's not – we're not worried about any inheritance of the house, nor are we worried about uh, necessarily any major problems of passing on uh, assets uh, to children. We're worried about each other, taking care of each other, but we're not necessarily worried about assets to children. So if you have a big student all the you all the student loan balance is yours if you die he doesn't inherit the student loan balance he can sell the house um and and he doesn't have the mortgage there so I don't see a lot of benefit of focusing heavily on um on getting these loans paid off unless it's a big big deal to you uh for some reason so I think Shaz here's my answer if I were in your shoes um I feel like I feel like Dave Ramsey here because I hate debt, but I have to acknowledge kind of the I'm not necessarily as hardcore as he is. If I were in your shoes, I think I would prioritize retirement savings and I would focus on doing that as aggressively as possible. And I would save as much money even possibly outside of that as well to make sure that I had some flexibility and some consistency. I would build up a big stash of money uh, in terms of emergency fund. I'd try to shoot for something like 100000 Uh If you set aside 100000 bucks that is available to you, then that'll give you the freedom and the flexibility to start adjusting your work situation. You're probably not going to want to travel very much uh, while your mother is alive. You'd probably want to wait uh, until she dies to, to do much more travel. So this is a really good time to to focus on your uh, focus on your uh, earnings and working as much as you can, uh, I would probably just keep the mortgage payments and the student loan payments uh, at their minimums. I'd pay them off as scheduled. If you live a long life, that'll work out well for you because the inflation you basically have an interest rate that's at the rate of inflation. Uh, and if you live a short life, if you die prematurely, then that'll work out well for you because you'll be able to leave more money in the 401k plan for your husband. 
I would, if I were you, I would buy some term life insurance for you to protect him because his future is tied to your awesome six-figure income. I would, uh, I would buy at least a million bucks of term life insurance for you. And at 40 years, 48 years... I- I do have that. Great. Okay. So just make sure that you have have that and that you keep that because that protects him uh, financially in case you die prematurely. And then I think I just pile off as much extra money as possible and I would arrange my retirement plans to – to just factor in my student loan payments and my housing payments. And then in the coming years, I would start volunteering and do the volunteer work with the plan of after you have more savings, after you've spent you know, the next three, four, five, six, seven years really saving as much as you can, I would adjust and I would start moving towards a part-time work arrangement that would allow you to live, reti- live your retirement lifestyle uh, while living on your earned income. If you can do your job from now through 70, that gives you 20 years of savings. If you max a, um, if you max a retirement plan, let's just do here uh, eight. Let's just, let's just say you're, doing, you're not doing catch-up contributions. I'm just going to schedule this at 18000 a year. So if you, if you max a, a retirement plan for 20 years at, uh, let's just say you get 8% interest starting with nothing, at the end of 20 years, we're talking a retirement plan balance of about $900,000, almost a million dollars. If you do catch-up contributions as well for, uh, uh, of getting you up to the $22,500, um, that account should easily be in excess of a million, possibly you know, a million and a half dollars, something like that. So that way, if you can just plan to work till 70, and if you've got a million and a half bucks in retirement plans, and you've got um, Social Security income, then you'd be in a really, really good um, situation. And, and then just arrange your work life so that you can continue doing your part-time work at this highly compensated work and also your part-time work with your volunteer work. And then hopefully you can do that for the next 40 years, something like that. So I think that's what I would do. Is that clear reasons why uh, uh, I said that? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm glad you called because that is uh, not an easy question. And I hope I didn't miss anything or get anything wrong there in my approach. Uh, <laughs> but when you think about it, just somebody who's in a situation like yours, uh, there's a really compelling reason. I think, I think, I think that's a compelling scenario. Uh, so I feel good about that answer. Let's go to Grant in New Hampshire. Grant, what can, how can I serve you today? Thanks a lot for taking my call, Joshua. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm 48, and I was a corporate drone up until about a year and a half ago. So I was actually the uh, white-collar guy from your podcast uh, that came out today about the 401K. Right. And um, I actually left my cushy job um, because of some extended family health issues about a year and a half ago, and that experience kind of opened my eyes, and I decided, hey, I don't want to be in the corporate world anymore, and I want to try this entrepreneurial thing. So um, I'm still working on my business. It's not been profitable, but from a tax perspective, last year that wasn't so bad. Um, but doing that, I got into you know a lot of the entrepreneurial podcasts and books, and that led me to the Side Hustle Nation podcast, which led me to you. And then I was like, wait a minute, and I really got into the financial, um, you know, the personal finance hardcore stuff, and I started doing a lot of study on that, you know, listening to tons of your podcasts. And I discovered that, you know, my family and I were pretty lucky. I mean, I kind of accidentally, you know, I've been very frugal my whole life. Um, My family's been, you know, careful with our money. I've done maxed out 401Ks, um, Roth IRAs, all of that. Um, so have some cash and some stock. And I'm even wondering right now, I'm like, huh, I might be even able to be financially independent now, but that's an, another story. Now, the, the, the reason I'm calling is because when I look at my entire portfolio, 
and I hadn't done this for years. I was just doing the corporate thing. I discovered, and I knew I had this, but I have a one stock that is in my total portfolio that accounts for about 25% of my total portfolio. Now, that's a really good thing. I mean, I'm very lucky to have it, but I also wonder what I should be doing with this. Like, do I sell it off and pay off the house? Do I let it ride? Um, do I sell it off in little chunks? Because now I'm in this low. Um, my, my wife's working full-time now, but we've cut our income by like a third. Um, so that's kind of what I'm looking at. Like, um, you know, I do like this kind of low-income life we're leading from a tax perspective, and it seems to be valuable. But, you know, my family's not totally comfortable when I talk about early retirement and things like that. So I just wanted to get your perspective um, on all of that stuff. So let's focus on that stock because uh, that's kind of the core of the message here uh, and sounds like you're still working through the bigger aspects of the financial plan, which we can talk about uh, in a future call. This stock, why would you sell it? I would – you know, probably it's the fear it's going to go down is the reason. You know, it's just I've I've held it for so, so long and it was – up very high initially, you know, it dropped to nothing, and I'm like, I'm not selling it now. It's not worth anything. And just by sheer holding on to that stock, it's gone through the roof. So um, part of the reason I've thought about selling it is that, you know, maybe we don't feel comfortable with the, you know, our expenses versus how much. We're right on the edge right now of, you know, we've always been savers before, but now we're on this teetering on this edge of where we're maybe spending a little more than we're bringing in because my business hasn't started going. So it's like, hey, maybe I could sell a little bit of it. And I have, I will tell you, I sold for the first time a tiny chunk of it to cover, you know, my wife is putting, maxing out her 401k at work now, and I just wanted to cover that loss of income. So, you know... I, I'm not sure if I do want to sell. I, in some ways, I think like this is a golden egg, and sometimes I don't even factor it into the equation because this could just could be the ticket if I just hold on to it. About how uh, what's the uh, about how much uh, money is the value if you sold it all today? About how much money is the value of this stock? About a quarter of a million. If you had a bank account with a quarter of a million dollars in it and I offered you the opportunity to buy this stock at the current price, would you stroke me a check today? Would I buy that that exact stock? Mm-hmm. for At its current I, price. I, yeah, I, I couldn't do it. No. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm kind of in the way, you know, after listening to you and all this stuff, I'm looking forward to a bottoming out in the, in the market so I can buy some more if it goes down. Or, But no, I don't think I, I couldn't pay that much per share price. No way. So that's probably your answer, and that's a good way to think about a lot of things. If there, if you're doing something today that you wouldn't do again if you had the opportunity to do it over again, you probably should quit doing it. If you're living in a house that you wouldn't buy again if you had the opportunity, sell it and move. If you're working in a job that you wouldn't – if you had the chance, knowing what you now know – if you had the chance to do it over again uh, to get that job, you should quit and go find something different. And if you own a stock – or anything in your life that if you had the chance to do it over again, you wouldn't do, then do it over. Then, then, then quit and, and go do it. You know, I've been selling my camper van. I sold it and then the deal fell apart. And so it's sitting in my driveway again right now. But I, I bought the camper van uh, 
with all these details are profiled in a uh, recent episode, probably 40 episodes ago, about um, how to buy a motorhome or RV and not get uh, not get taken. But I bought the camper van very carefully thinking about everything that I wanted. I did a ton of research. I very carefully chose it. But after buying it uh, and using it, one of the things that I learned was that I didn't have anywhere inside the camper van to put car seats at night when the beds are made up. And I realized that as we add a third child to that camper van, there's just not room for me to be able to handle those car seats. So I realized that I needed to make a change. If I were given the chance to buy that camper van over again, I wouldn't have bought it. And so because I wouldn't have bought it over again, I shouldn't keep it just because I've spent money fixing everything up and fixing everything or just because it now has sentimental value or just because I spent all kinds of time researching it. It's not right, and so I should get out of it. So if you wouldn't quickly stroke me a check for $250,000 to buy the stock at its current, uh, at its current price, then the answer is you should probably sell it. And you should probably sell it – you know essentially today because if you're real obviously you're not going to do that but um, meaning you got to think about it you got to make sure that you're really sure about it but you should sell it as quickly as you can uh, if you wouldn't buy it over again now here are the caveats to that which would make the difference number one you've owned the stock and you have a significant gain in the stock so therefore you're going to incur tax that cost needs to be calculated into your decision so you need to calculate the cost of that tax and rework the numbers and ask yourself the question again. If I gave you, you know, if you had whatever the tax burden that's built in, if you had $200,000 sitting in a, uh, a checking account, would you stroke me a check for $200,000 today? Rework the question, understanding the tax implications. But if you've dropped to one income and if all of the stock is long-term capital gains and you've dropped to one income to where you may be in the lowest capital gains bracket, um, check your cap- check what capital gains tax bracket you're in and see how you would qualify. And maybe you should sell all of it. Maybe you should sell part of it. You do want to make uh, a strategic decision with, with how you approach it. Uh, but – and that's kind of what I did already with the the small chunk. I saw, you know, just figuring, hey, we're going to end up at this tax bracket where it's going to cost like zero, like that we're not going to pay any capital gain. But there may be, I probably should go back and say, hey, if I sold even more and put us into the 15%, because this is all, all long, I've held this for over almost 20 years. So it's all, and it's all um, profit. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely get what you're saying. But, I, you know, I just, of course, have that, that seller's remorse, like if I sold it and I just saw it kept going up and up and up, you know, that, that's just something that, you know, I'm sure that's not totally, uh, that's not normal, but it feels like, oh, I would just be kicking myself when, you know, when my co- my kids are going to college and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Right. But, but you don't believe that it's going to go up. Because if you did believe that it was going to go up, then you would have said, oh, I've got the chance to buy that for $250,000. Man, I'd stroke a check today. If I gave you a if 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 I were offering you a real estate deal and you knew you knew that the the real estate deal that I was offering you was worth a uh, million dollars and I said you've got a chance to buy this today for $250,000 and you knew it was worth a million dollars you'd stroke that check in a heartbeat Yeah no okay. I, I so so don't I mean, it's 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 normal to have an emotional attachment to stuff like this, but don't let it confuse you as far as uh, 
as far as, uh, you know, yes, anything can go up, anything can go down, but you don't think it's going to go up. Otherwise, you wouldn't have answered as quickly as possible. Now, if you do think it's going to go up, if you think you've got a good deal and you'd stroke a check for $250,000, then you should keep it. And, and the answer is really as simple as that. Also, given your considerations um, in terms of your career changes and things like that, when you are making changes like that, that changes your risk profile and you should adjust your investment portfolio to match. So if you're in a situation where you are uh, – where you've um, – you, know, you, you are in a situation where you're trying to start a new business, when you were working and earning a high corporate salary – then if your stock you know, moved up, down, et cetera, that probably wasn't a big deal for you. You could fairly easily and comfortably make up the difference and you wouldn't be too worried about it. But now when you're in this new situation, now when you're in this new situation uh, where you uh, have the opportunity to start the business, that's going to change your risk profile. And because it's changing your risk profile, you should uh, probably consider adjusting your portfolio. All right, let's go to Aaron in Massachusetts. You're up next. How can I serve you today, please? Hi, Josh. Uh, big fan of your show. Thank you. Thank you. My question is, I'm 38 years old, married, two little kids, uh, third one on the way. My wife and I, when we lived, thank you very much. Um, when we were living in Massachusetts a couple of years ago, we decided to hit the road, travel around the country. I'm a registered nurse, and you can take three-month travel assignments. So plan was bomb around the country till the kids started school and decide where we want to live. Ended up in Northern California, where I got a very high paying job with a hospital here. And now our question is, do we stay here or do we move back to Massachusetts? And uh, we can't figure out a good way to like figure out how to make that decision. Here I make about double what I would make in Massachusetts. It is more expensive to live out here, but not, not enough that it makes up the difference for the increase in pay Man, northern california is such a beautiful place um why yeah, why <laughs> would you go back to massachusetts um i think the main reason is kind of the feeling of guilt because my father stepmother lived there her parents and sister live in maine so it's kind of like oh we're taking away our kids from our parents sort of thing and then like, oh, i moved to california and then we have lived there for a long time, so it does have some kind of – it feels like home in a way, but are, – are, <laughs> are your parents actively holding that over your head? Like is this an active conflict or is this just a vague feeling that you have? Uh, more of a vague feeling. Yeah, I think I mean, if you – They've flown out here a couple times, visit the kids, and then, you know, we're going to fly back in September, stay for a couple weeks. But – uh. We're close, but not everybody's not super, super close. If you survey family, there are some people who would say, "Man, I really want to live next door to my parents and grandpa and the kids' grandparents." There's some people who'd say, "You know, California to Massachusetts is an ideal distance. We can see each other once every couple of years, and it works out well." Uh, and I think there are considerations. Sometimes it's an advantage to live close to family. Sometimes it's a disadvantage to move close to family. But I, I don't, I wouldn't. I, if it's just a vague feeling, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a lot with that. Uh, there are all kinds of alternative ways to uh, to adjust the situation in a way that would fit uh, that would fit better in terms of uh, possibly they maybe they're going to move to California uh, maybe maybe um, 
there's a state closer that they want to move to Nevada or, or something like that. Or I mean, there are all kinds of different approaches uh, of things that can be done. And if you're making double in California what you would be in Massachusetts, there should be some extra money to pay for plane tickets from time to time uh, that could be valuable. Uh, also, there are plenty yeah, of ways. Uh, you know, sometimes if you live far away from somebody, you can send the kids for a few weeks during the summer. It could be a nice break for you and a nice break for the the parents. I mean, there are lots of ways that things can be adjusted. Do you have any other compelling reasons? to go to Massachusetts? Um, nah, not really. <laughs> well, in absence of a compelling reason to move, I, I don't see much functional difference between California and Massachusetts with regard to anything financial. I, I mean, they're both um, high-tax, high-cost-of-living uh, states to some degree, but Northern California right. is different than Southern California, lower cost of living, and uh, as long as you've calculated the tax burden uh, the, and, and calculated its impact on your life, then uh, I can't. I, I don't see any reason to go. If you were saying I should go to to California and move to Texas, then it would be a different. It would be a financial calculation. But I don't hear you asking any financial question. So I don't see any reason to leave. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Yeah, part of it was like I didn't want to make, and I can't tell in my mind a decision solely based off of finances as far as like an overall life um, life planning goes. But like here, I get if. The pension stays as like if I stayed out here, I get a pension at the end of the twenty years. Um, I don't in Massachusetts, and then I make more money now, so I can stay home more with the kids. And I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> just try not to get stuck in the golden handcuffs sort of thing as far as uh, reasoning goes. But my initial, <laughs> our initial thought pattern was pretty much what you said. Well, I can have enough money to pay for tickets and. Fly back. <laughs> yeah, I think you don't start with finance. You build ideal lifestyle, but finance is a component of that. And uh, Northern California is a, a beautiful and and tremendous place. Uh, so I could see a lot of uh, a lot of benefits of it. In absence of a compelling reason to change, I think you keep doing uh, what's been uh, you keep doing what's been working for you and and keep going with it. All right, Mike in Colorado, you're up next. How can I serve you today, sir? Uh, hi, Joshua. Uh, long-time patron. Uh, my question is, um, how can I tell if it'd be beneficial to start um, some sort of tax advantage plan uh, leaning toward maybe a 401k with or without profit sharing for a small business versus just taking the extra money and, and investing it in an after-tax brokerage account? Um, just a little history. We used to have a 401k in this company, apparently like seven years ago before I was there, but they dissolved it when they felt like they're getting ripped off with extra fees and, and uh, just not great options where they were investing. And so they dissolved it before I got there. Um, but I'm kind of looking at maybe trying to get something going again here. Um, we have like five doctors, 40 employees. Um, so one consideration is the the non-discrimination testing that we'll have to do and, and, uh, you know, the matching that we have to do, uh, profit sharing. So I just, I'm kind of staring down 40 years old and haven't saved much for retirement and we're all kind of in the highest tax bracket. So yeah. What are your thoughts? Are your employees asking for it? No, not at all. In fact, I, I think, you know, if we did do like the matching and stuff, I, I, I think a lot of them would not do it. Um, yeah. And, are your fe- um, your fellow physicians? You there are a total of five owners, and you you have an ownership stake in the firm. 
Yeah, 20%. We're all 20%. And are the other physicians uh, looking for something, trying to figure out how to establish some kind of plan? Not real. Well, I think one of them is definitely. Uh, one of them's on the fence. One of them puts all his money in like uh, whole life plans and stuff. And so mm-hmm. he's resistant. And one of them's also kind of on the fence. Um, and so, I, so I mean, it's going to come down to a vote. And I, I got to get three to two. So part of it, I need to present in a smart way, like, hey, mathematically, here we go. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my burden here. I, 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 from me looking at it, I feel like it probably makes sense. Um, and I did have like a, a, a fee-based advisor look at it and said he thinks it makes sense. Um, part of it comes down to whether you pay the tax, it goes to the government versus the money would go to your employees. I, I'd rather benefit my employees than the government. Of course. But, of course. Um, yeah. I think you need a consultant. Uh, you definitely, this yeah. is one where you need to calculate the numbers because instituting a plan is not free. It's not free to run the plan. There'd be administrative fees, third-party administrative fees, et cetera. And it's not free to start to establish the profit sharing, the employer matching. Um, if your employees are not clamoring for it, that means you may have some problems with the participation rate. Uh, so you'll need to make sure that either you do, you might, you, you, you know, you may be doing a safe harbor plan to, uh, which is going to, you have to calculate those costs. You need to get some actual numbers here. Then you need to calculate in your own situation what the optimal advantage is and calculate, okay, if I have this plan, just for me, just thinking selfishly, and I contribute, to it, how much is that actually going to save me in terms of taxation? And you have to focus on the fact that putting money in a 401k doesn't mean that you're never going to pay tax. Uh, So mentally, you're going to pay tax at some point. You're just going to pay it in the future. And so it's not 100% savings. It's not as though, okay, if I contribute $20,000, I'm getting this massive savings. You're getting some savings, but you're going to pay the tax at some point. Yeah. I definitely think there'll be an arbitrage because I won't make as much maybe in retirement. Agreed. Yeah. Right now. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't believe – I don't see uh, for the – I don't see how it's possible for people who are contributing and employees saving for retirement in the traditional way. I don't see how it's possible for them to have more a higher income in retirement than uh, during their working years. The only exception to that would be people who sell large businesses. But for the average person, you're going to have a lower income. So yes, it would be an arbitrage opportunity. My point is if you calculate the actual cost, every every year that you pay the TPA fees, every year that you make those contributions yeah. for your employees, that's money that you're not going to get in actual profit for yourself. So that's 100% money that's gone. If it's saving you an arbitrage of, say, 15%, 10 or 15% on your tax rates, then calculate what that number is and compare that to the cost of putting the plan in. My guess is it probably wouldn't make that big of an impact on your financial life. Uh, and if your employees aren't clamoring for it and if your fellow physicians aren't sure that they want it, it's probably not something I would pursue super aggressively. Now, I'm guessing. I haven't done any of that math. You need to do the math, yeah. but I'm, I'm just guessing. The biggest, ben- the biggest reason to put in place a profit-sharing plan uh, with, and choosing one with 401k benefits is as a way of 
enhancing the compensation package for your employees. That should be your primary reason because you're going to pay money for it. So if it's not helpful to your employees in terms of uh, of an extra uh, benefit that they really want, that they're going to value, uh, if it's not going to reduce employee turnover, if it's not going to put those golden handcuffs on their on their wrists, my guess is it's going to cost you more than it saves you personally. Uh, that would be my guess. But you need to you need to get math. You need to get a couple of proposals from a local employee yeah. benefits consultant with the cost baked in. Have them look, f- calculate the cost of doing you know safe harbor and things like that, and then compare that with your with your tax accountants to see how much you could potentially save by participating. Yeah, that's my my biggest challenge has been finding someone that's impartial that can give me just run the math for me and stuff because it gets very complex. You know, some of these it things, is. the fees you're paying pre-tax, some of these fees are pre-tax, and some of these, and so it just uh, it is extremely complex question. Um, Call a couple of local financial but, advisors. Tell them you're yeah. looking for a specialist. Call some of the big firms. Uh, call uh, a couple of the big uh, wirehouses and call a couple of the big uh, insurance companies. Um, so mm-hmm. call a cut just, – just or you know have your staff do it. Just call a couple of the firms and tell them I'd like to talk to somebody in employee benefits and get a referral. Uh, you'll be able to get a referral to somebody and they will come in and you get a few, a few possible referrals and they'll – They'll make some suggestions for you, and they'll give you a breakdown of the of the prices. And it won't cost you to have them quote you out a proposal, uh, and that'll give you better data to at least decide. Now, whether or not any of them does a good enough job that they deserve the business, that's up to you. But at least you'll get have an idea of whether it's something you should pursue heavily or not. Okay. That's where I would yeah, start. Yeah, I'll keep going on this and, and uh, see what we come up with. But uh, I appreciate your thoughts on it. Absolutely. It's definitely not an easy decision. <laughs> there is, I think employees often don't realize the costs that employers face uh, when it comes to uh, what they need to do and what they don't need to do and, and how much that they're actually going to pay for uh, for all of these decisions. All right, Andy in California, you are up. Our last caller. Go ahead and shoot, sir. Let me know how I can serve you today, please. Hi, Joshua. I am a huge fan of both your podcasts, so thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Uh, background for me, I'm 31. I work in the government school system and based on my current income, I'd receive about $120,000 a year for life beginning at age 62. So obviously it's a large amount, but it's also three decades away. Uh, it's a long time for, uh, politicians potentially change the rules of the pension system. And so I just am trying to figure out how you would uh, recommend I account for it in my long-term wealth planning or retirement planning. Uh, if I act like it's going to be there and it's not, then obviously I have a huge gap. Sure. But one of, the re- one of the reasons that uh, one of the benefits of working in a government system is the, the promised pension. And so if I uh, take a lower salary than the uh, private sector may offer and I have to still re- uh, save for retirement the same way, then there's obviously challenges there as well. If the retirement pension works as advertised. Are you thrilled with the job? Are you thrilled with the work? Are you thrilled with the prospect of of serving out your career uh, in this area for the next 30 years? Absolutely. I'm absolutely passionate about my job. Okay. I think that should be the the primary thing because a lot of the uh a lot of the math it's it's such a crapshoot. I mean, how do you know what how do you know? It's really hard to know. Um, 
so this would be would this be the Cowper's pension in California? That's correct. Exactly. Do you know anything about the financial strength of that pension program? I believe they're currently about 77% funded and the employer contribution requirement has gone from 10% as of 2 years ago of one's compensation to Right now, it's about 14%, and they just released data that it will go up to an employer match of or employer contribution of 28% um, by 2021. So they're requiring employers to pay a lot more into the system. It's not an area of my expertise. You have researched it and started researching it. I would I would follow your instinct. Search out the opinions. The search out the harshest critics you can find of the California pension system, try to find what the harshest critics say, and then try to find what the, you know, the biggest promoters say, and then study the actual numbers. My, this is a guess, not having done that research. My guess is that it's, my guess is that it's probably going to be about, you know, it's probably going to be pretty safe in terms of, there's a big difference between a city pension, in my mind, there's a big difference between a local city pension versus a, Cal- a state pension, and there's a big difference between the state of California and many other states. So California has a massive economy, and what the future of that economy is, what the future of these things is, it's hard to say. But if you are a government employee in the state of California, you are part of a very respected and honored voting block. You have a much stronger position as a part of that voting block than you do in many other states where government employees are not valued quite so highly politically speaking and ideologically speaking. Uh, Also, I mean, the CalPERS pension system is huge. It's absolutely huge. So if it doesn't work out, you're in in with a lot of other people. Uh, You're in trouble with a lot of other people. I think what I would do is I would focus first and foremost on the career. And if it's a career that you're going to be thrilled with, I would I would stick with that. Uh, because even if it's 80%, 70%, it's my guess that I don't see any way that given the demographics, given things, I don't see any way that a lot of these long-term pensions aren't going to take a, a, a slight haircut at least. But I don't think it'll be zero. So if you're thrilled with the career for another 30 years and then you retire and let's say what they're saying to you is going to be $120,000 but it's actually 100000 I think you'd be pretty happy in that circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you. I do have one more question. Is it possible for sure, me to go ask for that? It. Yep, go ahead. Uh, interesting perhaps uh, um, arbitrage opportunity with student loan debt. So unfortunately, I do have a lot of student loan debt in excess of $200,000. Um, I'm repaying it un- under an income-based pro- uh, program, which requires I pay 10% of my discretionary income to the student loan. And because I work in education, after 10 years of payments, they forgive the loan in a non-taxable event, and I've worked for four years, so I'm six years away from that. Um, the way they calculate that payment is it's based off of your adjusted gross income and then some other complex calculations from there. But um, given that's off your adjusted gross, uh, payments into a 403B or 457 would not um, be calculated for the loan repayment. So in essence, every $10 that goes into a retirement vehicle or tax-deferred retirement vehicle would be saving me a dollar in student loan repayment. And so I, I know that in general you uh, question the appropriateness of contributions to retirement accounts because of some of the restrictions. 
and the uh, limits on the types of investments that can be made, but want to know if under this situation, you would think that for at least the next six years so that I should stash as much as I can into that. Because worst case scenario, if I need the money after the loan's been forgiven and I have the 10% early withdrawal fee, it's really just the same as the 10% I would have had going towards the student loans. Yes. I would. <laughs> I would. I would put as much. I would. Obviously, you got to live. But given that opportunity with such a massive student loan uh, and given the fact that it's on schedule to be forgiven in six years, uh, I would max out those retirement accounts um, no question. Go back and listen to the show that I did on even how investing in, even if you have to take, um, when I did the math on taking early withdrawals, even if you pay the penalty of how that's still superior to um, contributing after tax, go back and listen to that show if you if you missed it. And that when you take that plus the student loan arbitrage opportunity, I think that is definitely the decision that I would make. I would put as much – I would seek to get every dollar into those uh, retirement accounts at this stage that I possibly could get. And also given your first question that you asked, I think that would uh, – I think that that moves you – that helps you as well in case of problems with your pension uh, to where you additionally have some uh, some savings. So even if you don't do this forever – uh, even if you do this as a strategy, something along the lines of for the next six years, we're just going to uh, live on very little, uh, but we're going to put everything into these retirement accounts. If you have young children, then that'll probably – six years from now would probably be an ideal time to start spending more money on them. Then go ahead and feel free after the student loans are forgiven. Go ahead and just reduce your retirement account contributions. And so on multiple levels, I see that as being a good plan. Saves you money on student loan interest and payments because of the debt forgiveness. Allows you to set aside money that will be there for retirement. And even if you need to take it out before retirement, you would still be better off. Uh, by using those retirement accounts uh, than you would uh, than you would otherwise. So uh, I'll look up that show. I don't remember the title of the show that I'm referencing, but I'll look that up and put it in the the show notes for other listeners. But it was a show where I calculated how um, it's still superior if you're going to take money out for for early retirement, even if you're going to pay the penalty, you still should use a retirement account if you have access to a good one. Terrific. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling in, man. What a great, uh, what a great situation. And uh, work hard. You're in the middle of, uh, uh, you're in the middle of an important job. And uh, if you like it and you you work well in the government school system there, then uh, I wish you all the best. You know, I seriously considered uh, being a, a, a government school teacher myself. I thought it would be really, really great. Get to do. I love to teach. I love to teach um, young men and women and children. I'm not an elementary school guy, but I would love to do high school. If I could teach high school history, that'd be a dream, <laughs> a dream career for me. Uh, so I love to teach. And uh, when you get all the benefits of uh, of the teaching system, if you can earn a good wage. Uh, and that depends on school district. But if you find a school district that can uh, pay you a good wage, you get summers off, you get work that's constrained exclusively to basically the classroom hours. Yes, maybe you do have to do some other things. But my experience has been that uh, if a teacher uh, really, really focuses, a lot can be done during the school hours in terms of the grading requirements and things like that. Uh, you start putting these things together. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous early retirement career, in my opinion. When you add to that a pension, you add to that student loan forgiveness, 
great work, um, meaningful work. You have the ability to impact students. Uh, I mean, for many young men and women, their teachers, a high school teacher is a bigger influence than, than practically anybody else, oftentimes. Uh, summer's off to travel. It's a <laughs> who knows? Maybe someday I will retire and go go teach. <laughs> I probably you never know. You never know what life brings on us. All right, thank you everybody for calling in. If you would like to call into a show like this in the future, please remember to sign up and become a patron. Radicalpersonalfinance.com/patron. Uh, in addition, you can sign up for the email list. That's how I'm doing these notifications right now is via the email list. So feel free to sign up for the email list. You'll find that at radicalpersonalfinance.com. Thank you all so much for listening. I think if I have any other... Oh, keep on sending me your episode 500 voicemails. Uh, take out your phone if you would. Just do me a quick favor. Do it today if you've been wanting to do it. Uh, they say you got to ask people 10 times to do something. And so this is consider this about your 10th a- uh, ask. Take out your phone and uh, pull over to the side of the road and do me just a quick favor. Just record about two to three minutes telling me what you've done uh, and what you've changed in your life and how you've gotten richer. Rich life now while working towards financial freedom because of Radical Personal Finance. Send me that audio file, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. I will play it for your fellow listeners in episode 500. Back with you Monday. This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com.